listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hello everyone, I'm Fran Barber. And I'm Robin Whittaker. And Robin and I are going to be focusing on three readings for this week, which is Pentecost 23. Firstly, Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 to 17 and Matthew 23, verses 1 to 12. And we will have a foray, we think, into 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 13. We'll see how we roll. Yes, we'll see if we get to Paul. Yeah. Now we're going to start with Joshua. So Moses has died and his, his leadership is being passed on to Joshua. This is a passage pregnant with um, difficult themes in general, of colonisation and violence and invasion implied in this particular passage. The book itself has those things depicted more graphically. Um, So those themes are difficult, but then in our context in our world, in that part of the world at the moment, um, we have these sorts of activities flaring up. So um, a lot for a preacher to um, tackle, but... I think when it's this hard, it means you you really need to do it. I think so. And, I mean, we'll come back around to the leadership question because I think actually this this particular passage is all about that. But the, mm. the broader context, I mean, the story just earlier in Chapter 3 has kind of repeated how the book opens, which is an emphasis on Joshua being given the mantle of Moses, mm. right, and that God is now with Joshua in the way that God was with Moses. Yeah, I think Moses' name is mentioned over six times or something in the mm. first chapter of the book. And the other repeated refrain we've had in these first couple of chapters is this this sort of almost call command by God to Joshua to be strong and courageous. Mm. And he's standing on the cusp of kind of entering into this promised land. So the scene imagines... Uh, the Hebrews standing on the east side of the Jordan about to cross the Jordan River into what would become known as Israel or in modern terms the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to see repetitions of Moses' liberation from Egypt as they then return to the land. So we're getting repeated themes mm. of God's presence. Um and it's not just depicted here so that the people who might be a bit slow totally get it, is it? <laughs> you know, um, it's, you know, that this is your new leader, this Joshua is like, is taking Moses' place, has Moses' charisms and so on. Mm. It's, it, I mean, that's the clear leadership message. But the bigger theological and, if you like, pastoral message here is the nature of this leadership is such that it 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 is what... Um, ensures God's presence with you yes. or how, the, how, how, how this continuity and leadership is being portrayed is a reinforcement of God's faithfulness and ever presence with the people. Yeah, and that's a presence they've experienced, a faithfulness they've experienced in all the wilderness wanderings. Even though they thought he wasn't there. So, you know, Exodus 33 where, Lord, are you amongst us or not, was like that's asked clearly in that story but it's a theme that runs through those wilderness wanderings all the time yes and the presence of god that in the moses liberation from x from egypt story was the pillar of cloud Mm. various images like that for god god's presence is now located in this ark Mm. of the covenant which is literally a physically built little box highly decorated box carried perhaps on some long pole things um 
although 12 men are asked to carry it. It must be heavy. Uh, it must be of a fairly grand scale. But its significance is that it's called the Ark of the Covenant because it was thought to carry the stone tablets of the Mosaic Covenant. Mm-hmm. And it also embodies the sort of presence of God. So it's dangerous. There's later stories mm. of people who touch the Ark um, mm. when it slips and um, they die as a result. So and this is very much... Almost magical. Oh, it's a charged, it's ob- charged, charged yes. object. But I'm just thinking of the word ark, and I may be going off on a loose <laughs> tangent here. But the ark, as in Noah's ark, as in the vessel that carries through um, the chaos of water. Med- oh, I- you're asking me a question. Yeah, well, that requires no, me to go look at my Hebrew well, no, while we're I, talking. So okay, give well, me a moment. I'll that's all right. You don't need to. Everyone else can go and do that if they think there's something. I'm just interested in the word. I'm um, and the use of the word. Whether it is that. Yeah, it gets known as the Ark of the Covenant, but, you know, talk amongst yourselves, people, while I try and read some Hebrew. No, it's yeah. okay. They can um, look that We'll up. come back to that. Um, but look, can I give some kind of background oh, yeah, that do, might do, help do. us? So I guess this is a background with a caution, which is if we read this too simply, um, we can read this as a story of an actual historic telling, right? And it's framed that way as a historical narrative. But um, Robert Alter, oh, sorry, go. Well, verse 10 is where it is most pronounced this problem, I guess. By this you shall know that among you is the living God who without fail will drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, etc. Exactly. It's pretty clear apparently that this is an expedition of conquest. Yes. However, Robert Alter. However, Robert Alter. Um, And he would not be the only scholar. This is now a general scholarly um, Consensus, But Alter writes that what the last several decades of archaeological investigation have established is that there was no sweeping conquest of Canaan by invaders from the east in the late 13th century BCE, which would be the time of Joshua. And that many of the towns listed here in, as objects of Israelite conquest were either uninhabited at this time um, or did not come under Israelite rule until considerably later. So what he goes on to talk about in terms of what's going on then in the Joshua narrative is that this story of the annihilation of the indigenous population of Canaan belongs not to historical memory but rather to cultural memory. And and what he's talking about there, and this is what post-colonial scholars will now identify, is that this is all about the formation of identity of a distinct people set mm-hmm. apart by God, which is in the numbers narrative. Um, And one way that colonisers will distinguish themselves from the people whose land they're going into is they will other them. So Mm. the Canaanites get consistently portrayed as somehow vastly different, um, wicked, worshippers of Mm -hmm. Baal, other type things. So they get othered constantly. Um, and, And Israel gets framed as this is divinely ordained this is the land God wants, where the holy people were chosen, all of that language. Um, so we can see this played out throughout history in various religions all the way through to the contemporary era in the way people, colonisers, will talk mm. about their mm. activity and give it um, legitimacy. So, yeah, so this is not to say – so when we're trying to cor- more correctly, I guess, understand what's being said here, it's not that nothing happened that was, uh, you know – the colonisation is going on here, but not the obliteration that is implied. And not in the way it was maybe more, uh, yes. So we've, yeah. So And I say all of that just so that 
when we talk about this passage, we don't immediately um, assume that this kind of glorification of inheriting other people's land is, you know, as, as a divinely ordained thing, is a good or is somehow normative. Like we've got to put this in a context of a people forming identity because we, I think we've seen historically the problems mm. of, of mm. doing that. Mm. But also with what's going on in the world at, at the moment, I would also want to say that this land that will become the holy land, we know, you know, not just in the history of Israel as it is in the Hebrew Bible, but right through the cont- contemporary, you know, 20th century history, continues to be contested land. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, has given the Jewish people and my Jewish friends have, have this very strong sense of being continually under attack even whilst we want to acknowledge that life is being lost on both sides and the violence is horrendous mm. and and not good for anyone but yeah so that that's why mm. i think we have to be so careful in the way we retell this story oh, but, and that the palestinians probably feel like this list of people here in verse the 10 canaanites and the hittites yes. whose land got yes. yeah taken yeah so what do we do with this as preachers, Fran? Because I think yes. I think actually this is probably a story more about um, the kind of leadership that takes uh, – I guess I would want to read this maybe more metaphorically about what it means to be the people on a cusp of something. Well, right? yeah, yes, definitely. Being called to step out boldly with God's presence and yep. how we do that. And also preaching that. Um, from the perspective of us genuinely not knowing what that thing looks like. I mean, we yeah. yeah, the promised goal being the day of the Lord or the consummation of all <laughs> things, to put it in very grand terms. Yep. But, I mean, we can see from this story because we're this side of history, we can see where these people are going, but they don't fully trust that that's where they're going. So being on the cusp is a ambivalent place to be. It's a hard place it's to be. It's a really hard yeah. place to be. So... Um, so I think definitely that's a focus in this passage, but it's also it's a preaching opportunity for what does it mean to maintain the tradition of presence as mm. a community of the presence of God? Not I mean your own presence as a community, and if you're Christian, then you are you know a light of the world and Christ embodied mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. on. But um, that theological point I made earlier about how the continuity of leadership here that's so heavily laboured is about the presence of God or the on you know the, the guaranteed ongoing presence of God and how do we as a community believe, embody, talk about, doubt, refine that. Yep. Yep. And I think I want to also mention the water symbolism here. So obviously at one level this this Jordan being held back by the ark, by the presence of God, is obviously imitating the Red Sea mm. story. So it make, mm. means Joshua has the same leadership, amazing power mm-hmm. and signs of God's presence mm-hmm. as Moses. But it, cosmically in the Hebrew Bible, water is this threatening force, mm. right? So there is also something about God's presence holding back that which would threaten oh, the community. Yeah, the divine power, definitely. Mm. Um Yes, yes, that's here too and echoed, as you say, through the Red Sea and creation before that. Um, I think that's where I got my half thought about the ark moving through the water. Anyway, the chaos. But anyway, that was a tangent, folks. Don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so I think the the fruitful themes to play with are probably around leadership. And uh, presence and... Divine presence. Where where is God leading us even when that's scary and we don't quite know what the other side of the river is going to look like, right? Mm. I think 
Yeah, and what sustains us or what in sustains that journey, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I think those those are the key things for me. So Matthew 23, uh, 1 to 12 is the lectionary reading. Um, we're getting to the pointy end of Matthew. Yes. Um, we're in Jerusalem. There's ver- yep. a lot of conflict. Jesus has really doubled down on his, um, well, mixing metaphors, but pinning the Pharisees down around what they're actually on about and what, what the law is and what mm. faithful living is and um, – he wasn't very successful in the synagogue in chapter 13, so he's been teaching outside the synagogue. And I think from Matthew's point of view, he's, he's aware that Jesus um, is a teacher of the law that lacks kind of external accoutrements like degrees mm. <laughs> or um, but definitely clearly impresses people with a charisma and a wisdom. Yes, uh, and that's a bo- it's bothering everybody, <laughs> that yeah. particularly those in um, official senior leadership positions mm. in the tradition. And in the scene just prior to this, um, well, he's been having lots of debates with Pharisees in particular. So Pharisees are often the other, right, the, the arguing partner for Jesus in the way Matthew tells the story. Mm. Um, but we have had agreement around some things. So we've had agreement in Chapter 22 around the greatest commandment being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And then we've had disagreement about other things including um, Jesus being son of David, which is his messianic identity. So I think... Um, they do. I mean, Jesus agrees with them here, what they're teaching. Yes. To a, well, well, I mean, maybe. It, well, yeah. yeah. Well, it says... Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. Yes, although I but I wonder, do not do as they do. Yeah, although I wonder if he's actually being pretty cheeky, tongue in cheek. Oh, okay. So let's let's unpack this perhaps in okay. in a. Um, so the scribes and Pharisees often group together because they're perhaps almost indistinguishable mm-hmm. as scholars of the law. Um, the law being. The, Moses, the Torah of Moses. Um, so I think the reference to sit on Moses' seat is simply sitting as the posture of a teacher or a rabbi and Moses' seat is in this tradition of interpreting the law. So mm. he's talking about interpretation of the Bible really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how to read that verse 3 you just referenced, Fran, I think is tricky because on the one hand it does look like he's saying accept their teaching but not their action. Mm. But then he's so critical of their sort of disconnection that you wonder if it's a much more sarcastic kind of, well, if you have to accept what they're teaching but really um, Mm. their actions are so out of step with that that you can't really even trust that. Like can you trust a teacher who doesn't do what they say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Further on in verse 6 onwards, it's pretty scathing. Yeah, it really is. The account of them. Um. Just and this might be an aside. I'm not sure, but I am interested that in in terms of this being an intra-Jewish conversation, and that's really important for everybody to understand. These are Jewish people talking about the right way of doing things in their tradition, 
Yes. It's not about slagging off Jewish ways of doing things no, or Judaism. Jesus is a Jew arguing yeah, with other Jews about yeah, how to interpret I, I feel like teaching. that can't be said too much, but some no. of our listeners might think it has been said too much. Anyway. Um, <laughs> we'll keep saying but, that. Though, but Matthew, so you've talked about Pharisees and scribes, but Matthew seems to be quite careful to talk also about elders and chief priests. It's it's like, um, I don't know whether that's how that's significant. It's, it, I guess it's just underlining the... Um, the intra-Jewishness of it and that this is not just about slagging off one part of it but this whole tradition. Yeah, is, is, in, is in being critiqued. Yes, at some, at some points. And, I mean, the, the images Jesus uses are quite graphic. So verse 4, like literally they tie up heavy burdens and put them on the shoulders of other people. Like It's not like they're actually doing this, right? He's using imagery to, to point to the burden someness of aspects of the law. Yeah, but that's also if we have echoes in our head of his yoke being easy and his burden being light. Yes. Which is Isaiah as well, isn't it? Yes, but it's earlier in Matthew's gospel. It's earlier in Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's chapter eleven around verses twenty nine and thirty is Jesus saying I'm gentle and Mm. humble. Right. So Mm. we're getting we need to read Matthew with Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that's a very definite use of language there to echo that. Exactly, yeah. So their burdens are heavy. They don't help you lift them. Jesus' yoke is gentle and, in fact, Jesus is going to help you lift mm. even that gentle yoke. That's the mm. con- contrast. So this is why I think this is actually all about the identity of Jesus, which the previous passage about Son of David helps I see. make clear because it's about Jesus as a rabbi who will not burden you. And then we get some very Jewish imageries here. Phylacteries are the um, tefillim, the little leather boxes mm, that mm-hmm. you would put maybe a snippet of law in and put on your forehead or your um, arm as, as a kind of reminder. You know, think of it as a, I don't mean to trivialise it, but an ancient what would Jesus do type bracelet. Yeah, you know, okay. Some kind mm. of physical or carrying a rosary or something that reminds you of your faith and um, ethics. And the fringes are the fringes on the Jewish prayer shawls. I, whenever I read this, I'm married to an Anglican who doesn't listen to this podcast, so it's fine. I can just say what I think, but sorry, <laughs> Anglicans. Um, th- this reminds me of how in certain Anglican circles you'll get like the extra lace on the cotter or the really big Roman-style priest oh, right. collar. And these signify certain things. And I'm not saying those people are like the Pharisees, please. Just, but Don't come at Robin. <laughs> don't, don't come at me, Anglican. Sorry. Um but we all have variations in our religious traditions that are ways mm. of signifying piety mm-hmm. and these are the ones that would make the most sense in Jesus' mm-hmm. context. These are the things associated with worship and ritual and keeping the law and prayer and that kind of stuff. Which have their place but here they have been um, overly emphasised or... They've become performative. Performative, yeah. yeah. Where the, he's saying the action doesn't... Mm. You know, so it's someone who can perform the role of a priest in modern-day context and be holier than thou in church and actually lives a life and is cruel to people or unkind or, you know, Mm. in ways that don't match Mm. the kind of piety that gets performed in a... Which is worse than hypocrisy because it's a sort of... It's it's a failure to love the other person or or to understand the scripture as to be, uh, you know, a a faithful and... I don't know. Yeah. Light an invitation to us, so it yeah. becomes. So it's sort of like more. It's more than just just hypocrisy. No, it is because it goes to integrity and consistency, right? And 
I mean, I've been doing some leadership training recently because of my role and, um, you know, they'll talk about the trustworthiness of a leader is directly tied to things like your consistency, your reliability and your integrity that mm. you, you say what you do and you do what you say, right? Mm. And and so this is a deep critique. Again, it takes us back to the leadership question of mm. people that Jesus would say are not being the leaders God calls them to be, mm. um, which in his mind I think the leadership is about humility and being a servant. And so he goes into that a bit more in verse 8 or mm. 7 to 8, saying, well, you can't be called a teacher because you only have one teacher, which yes. presumably is God, uh, or him. Or him, yeah, him. perhaps, because um, they yeah, do him. call him rabbi at points yeah, in the yeah. and, yep. and you are all brothers and sisters, so there's sort of this family of God yes. um, imagery or language that comes yep. in. Um, and yes, you only have one father, so that's God. Which I find him. to be a... I mean, he's he's making the point that you've got yes, your your siblings in the faith, not and, over and above everybody. Yes, and so no one, no earthly father has that kind of power over you like your heavenly father, mm-hmm. and um, only one instructor who's Jesus. Mm. And then this topsy turvy gospel logic of the um, the greatest among you will be mm. your servant. I mean, I think it's verse twelve that would probably. Um, compel me most in you know in with whether what i preach in this passage mm. because it's such a conundrum all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all i mean that makes sense so puff yourself uh, up puff, and yeah pride comes down. before a fall is an incredibly shallow you know addition of that but not entirely wrong well, <laughs> sometimes you wait a long time for the fall yeah sometimes it is a bit too long to watch actually <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. And it's, I think it's a conundrum because it can be an instrumentalising of humility, which is mm. completely opposite to what we're called to – it's the opposite of the good news of the gospel of grace. But you end up going, well, okay, so I'm not supposed to exalt myself. I'm supposed to be humble. But if I try too hard, then actually I'm not living the grace that – I'm called to. So, yeah. you know, what is the role of the law in this? And I'm, I'm just asking questions here, which isn't <laughs> no help to For people. which there are no answers. No. <laughs> no. Um, well, it, I'm sure I mean, Jesus is the answer and I don't mean that tritely. No, but no, Jesus I, Christ who is, yeah. an, you know, or who is as he does, you know, he is the, the one with integrity. Yes, and I think, I mean, to go to your question, it, this verse always reminds me of a, a friend of mine at some Christian camp who once did pray with a slight twinkle in his eye, thank God we're all so humble, um, <laughs> right, which is exactly the dynamic you're pointing to if you're actually almost performing a certain humility that in itself becomes problematic. Mm. So I think if one wanted to explore that theme of humility or what it means to be a humble leader or a humble Christian in the community, we've got to... the. The previous few verses, I think, help, which is it, it is deeper than something we practice or perform. It is actually an attitude that says, I don't seek the status of the high place or the status of a title. I'm prepared to serve. And um, it's and it's isn't it a state that comes from resting entirely in the acceptance that God is loving and accepting of us and of the other who stands before us? Yep. And that's sort of the thing that's easy to say, but that's where it does rest in in that mm. genuine acceptance of that. And 
so just one thing I skipped out in in my sort of thought process here is in this story, it's actually um, reading us in a way that we are the, yeah. we are mostly the Pharisees in our we are Pharisaical in how we understand God's grace. We yeah. love self righteousness. We love righteously deciding what's correct and what's not. We love and a bit of status and a we, title. Yeah, and, and we love role. working out who's pure enough, whatever that means. I mean that in the broader sense. Yep. Um, it's an, it's we an automatic. the Christian community here? Who's well, the human, well, yes, or, but or I think us. humanity does it. Yep. I mean, I'd go, it's just what it is to be human. We do it yep. all the time. And um, it's the hardest thing for us to hear that we don't have to do it with regard to ourselves. Not that we shouldn't do it to other people, but we absolutely don't need to do it. Yes. So some of that is, if I'm hearing you correctly, Fran, some of that is about actually what it means to truly accept the grace and forgiveness and love of God actually almost takes away not the desire for those things but almost the need or the clamouring yeah, for them because yes. we can rest Yes, it knowing we're in God's care. And we're not in competition. Yes. Which is what the other dynamic does to us. In competition either with ourselves or with the people around us. That's true. Yeah, so this is potentially a really powerful passage to, you know, for anyone where there is big noting, grandstanding, competitive behaviours, which are everywhere in the church. Yeah, but, but also self-loathing. and I mean, because yes. if, if there's a competitive thing like that, is there a self-loathing behind that or a mm. sense of inadequacy? I don't know. We're becoming psychologists now. We better stop. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to preach on this, it is worth popping back to Matthew 11.30 and that for my yoke is easy mm. and my burden is light and, and – and that too, I think, interrogates us as Christian communities is what we ask of people, is the way we actually um, do embody our faith light. Are we mm. joyful? Are we um, segueing here into First Thessalonians? Yes, excellent. Um, <laughs> we, we said we'd do it, we better do yeah. it. Um, you know, our, our, do we rest in our faith, which is what Jesus actually offers in that earlier passage um, in a way that takes away some imperative to perform and strive and earn and all those things you named. Mm. Mostly we don't, but we need to be reminded to do so. Yes. So, Fran, what do we want to say about well, First I mean, Thessalonians? Well, I mean, isn't First Thessalonians reminding us of this thing again? I think so. Um, Maybe before we jump into it, can I just say, one of the things I find nerdily exciting about First Thessalonians is it is our earliest Christian text. Yes, I learnt this recently. You you might think she should have known that 20 years ago. It's not a thought I've often had to think, but... Well, it's probably not a text we spend a lot of time on, but scholars think it is the earliest of Paul's letters that we have. He may have written earlier ones and we've lost them. So it is our most ancient Mm. Christian piece of writing, which I think makes it kind of interesting and reflects a very early period in in Christianity, which if you've read the whole of the letter, makes sense. They're, they're concerned about people have died, what happens to people have died because mm. they're ex- still expecting Jesus any day mm. now. Um, and so there's a lot of just very practical teaching about what it means to be Christian for this newly converted community. So this is a funny little snippet that we've got today, isn't it? It's a mm. continuation from a greater argument that was in last week's lectionary. It was, and this is I. I don't sometimes understand the lectionary divisions. Well, we often critique them. Yes, I mean, would you go further? I mean, 
Well, well, I'd start, I think if you were to preach on this, I mean, you could just read it as its own little passage and it sits thematically quite nicely with the Matthew Gospel Mm. reading. Um, But the start of the chapter is around mistreatment and um, Paul's been building this rhetorical argument back in verse 3 about, and this makes sense in its cultural context. He's talking about we haven't tried to trick you, we haven't tried to deceive you. So he's pointing to we have ancient historians who talked about um, leaders who tried to like dupe the population with their trickery, moving statues, oh, right, and right. superstition and mm. other stuff, usually for money. Um, and then he, he's talked about we didn't flatter you, we didn't, we weren't greedy, and he's actually used this beautiful image of we cared for you like a nurse. So he... This is the Paul Paul as a mother kind of image. And that makes sense of the, you remember our labour and toil, siblings. Mm. We work night and day. So the financial independence also playing on a cultural theme where um, ancient sources tell us that, say, um, the sophists would travel around and and teach and do things to try and raise money. Um, So, you know, it's a reminder that any Christian pastor who drives a sports car, wears designer clothes and has multi-millions of dollars in a profit property portfolio is uh, not really – might need to find a new church. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think we're picking up the argument halfway through. Mm. Um, and, and again, Paul's concern, and this is where it does match Matthew, I think is very much about conduct and it can sound very pious to us, but it is again um, – tapping into a broader cultural kind of understanding that we get philosophers and other people saying at this time of your words and your actions have to mm-hmm. match. I mean, not just at this time, right? It's kind of also logical. So verse 10 is significant there. Your witnesses and God also, um, how pure, upright and blameless our conduct was towards you believers. Mm. Yeah, so for Paul, it's not just his words that preached the gospel. It's, it's his, his conduct yeah. that was blameless and he refers to the community as you are you are the witnesses, you are the testifiers mm. to this, mm. as is God, that this was what kind of convinced you. Mm. Um, so it reminds me of the Francis Assisi thing, you know, yeah. preach the gospel and if mm. necessary use, use words. words. But then there's also that very intimate family language that mm. um, that Jesus was reaching for in the Matthew passage yes. today as well. Yes, we've got another father with sibling mm. kind mm. of um, children. Yeah. That, yeah, again, might feel a bit icky to some of us contemporary hearers. Maybe well, not, maybe depending not. on well, your experience. Of, yeah, yeah. Um, so just acknowledging that for some people an image of a father and children could be problematic. Mm. Um, but Paul here talking about a father dealing, you know, urging and encouraging and pleading is actually quite a gentle father image in its cultural context. Mm. And um, there's and there's a very it's thankfulness here too, like yes. thankfulness to God. I mean, it seems like it's a very summation of the gospel sort of passage. It seems to me. Yes, and you could pick up the two thirteen. We give thanks constantly. Mm. Um, you know, in in your prayers, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. Yeah. So, which is an interesting twist on the conduct, right? Because he's talking mm. about being blameless and upright, but at the end we get that the word works within us. So, in fact, even our blameless and upright conduct—it's not our own when we manage it. Yeah, yeah, it's not our own achievement. Is by the grace of God's 
word alive in us. So, Which is perhaps getting at the humility from yeah, the Matthew passage. And connecting word and deed um, all as coming from God. Probably a good place to stop. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>